0: Welcome to Hazel Story, an Epic Saga podcast. We're here to dive deep into the panels and pages of Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staple's comic book, Masterpiece, unpacking the amazing characters, themes, and weirdness of this grand space opera. I'm Alan. And my name's Abu. And we are back after a bit of a uh, yes. somewhat unplanned break, because, well, life. <laughs> Abu and I both have day jobs and families, and that's how it goes. But... We are so happy to be here back with you all to complete Volume 3, diving into Chapters 16, 17, and 18 of Saga.
1: That's right. It feels good to be back. But as always, a reminder that our Deep Dive read-along episodes are spoiler-free, so if you're reading along with us for the first time, don't worry, we won't be talking past Chapter 18
0: today. And as we're reading through those chapters, just another reminder that we love to hear from you, our listeners. So mm-hmm. email us at hazelstorypodcast at gmail.com with any thoughts you have on the chapters we're reading or ideas for future episodes. Plus, just wanted to let you all know that we're working on expanding the format of the show to include guests, and we'd love to hear who you think we should talk to, including if it is you yourself. So yeah, write us an email, record a voicemail, send it to hazelstorypodcast at gmail.com. There's two S's in a row here. Nominate a guest who you think would be great for us to talk to about Saga, including if it is you yourself. We would love to have listeners on this show. It's the beauty of remote recording. We can get you on the show and would love to hear what you think about Saga.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Shoot your shot. Okay, so let's get into it. As always with these deep dive episodes, we're going to start with a brief summary of today's chapters, then we'll jump into our key takeaways, and finally, wrap up with our favorite panels and quotes. So let's get to it. Yes.
0: For chapter 16, we open on landfall with our buddy, Agent Gale, being questioned by tabloid reporters Upshur and Doff. He gives them the standard no comment treatment until they Show him a photo of Alana wearing a wedding ring, a wreath-style wedding ring. Apparently on Landfall, they don't do the old wedding band thing, Yeah, but they do on wreath. So Alana, as a Landfallian, wearing a wreath-style wedding ring, big deal.
1: Mm-hmm. Agent
0: Gale then tries to spin some bullshit about Alana actually being a super secret, deep, undercover mega-spy. And they can't report this story because of planet security or something. When Doth don't believe him, Gale gets pretty snappy with them. And we learn that they are from a planet called Jetsam, where apparently this, quote, fledgling young society does not yet accept homosexuality, which it's implied as a threat from Gale to these two reporters that he's going to out them and thereby ruin their careers, which is really low as far as, like, leverage to pull on somebody. Like, come on, Gale. We know you're a slimeball, but, like, fuck, man, that's a new low. Yeah. So then once the reporters leave, Agent Gale immediately calls up our freelancer agent friend, our seahorse friend, still chilling on the beach at his
1: desk. I don't know if he lives (laughs) there, but he does seem pretty comfy. (laughs) I'm convinced it's a green screen. He's in a really (laughs) dimly lit shitty office, but he puts that back there to feel better.
0: (laughs) So Gale is on the phone with this freelancer seahorse agent, and he demands that someone be hired to shut the journalists up you know, with extreme prejudice. The freelancer agent says, well, no, 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 you can't kill journalists, which is kind of, I don't know, amazing to hear that there's a code among assassins that they won't assassinate journalists. Yeah. Not so much the thing here on earth, but Gail kind of nudges him along and agrees to pay a premium. And the freelancer agent is like, okay, I got somebody. He pulls out this like super secret folder. That's like, what to do in case the will is unreachable. And there's like a bunch of names scratched off. And there's one name left, the brand, who is only to be contacted in emergencies. So you're like, oh shit, the brand must be intense.
1: Yeah. And just for the record, the other two names in the will's emergency contacts are his mother and someone named Uncle Steve. (laughs) (laughs) But like, why are they scratched off? Are they dead? It's terrifying. That is my question, yeah. Now, after... This There are two main scenes for the rest of this chapter that cut back and forth, much like an A plot, B plot. And so in our summary today, instead of jumping back and forth like crazy and getting hectic, we're just going to take it one scene at a time. Starting with Gwendolyn, Sophie, and a very injured The Will on the lush planet. So Gwendolyn is out and about searching for a lost Sophie. When she suddenly starts hallucinating her first lover, the woman that took her virginity. And in a brilliant stroke, she turns to Lion Cat and asks if this person she is seeing is real. And Lion Cat says, lying. And so she uses Lion Cat's ability to suss out the truth to figure out that this is an illusion and that this planet is dangerous. I really loved this short little scene because it showed us just how tactically brilliant Gwendolyn is, right? Like we have seen time and time again, examples of how effective she is as an agent and how intelligent she is. And this is just one more example of that.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's wild to see like how everyone else can't figure this out for like the
1: longest time and she like figures it out immediately. Yeah, it's brilliant stuff. So she rushes back to the ship only to find the will bleeding out and Sophie standing above him, foot on his throat with a bloody knife in her hand. Lioncat immediately jumps into action, lunges at Sophie, things get tense. Gwendolyn manages to get in the way and stop Lioncat from harming Sophie, and she quickly ties Sophie up. Now the problem, of course, is that Gwendolyn does not know the magical spell required to save the will's life in this moment. So she comes to the conclusion that they have only one option. They need to go to someone who does know that magic, and that someone happens to be her ex-boyfriend, Marco. I love that
0: too, that that like spell that Marco knew to save his life when he was going to die was something special, that it wasn't something that like all people from Wreath know. Yeah. And it is also kind of a nice plot device to do what has been kind of happening with all the chapters up till now. We need all our characters to come together in one place. And that one place is Quietus. Meanwhile, our first entrance into the family hanging out on Quietus with the Oswald heist is a little jarring because it's these three panels of, we don't even know what the hell it is, but it's like a bumblebee child fighting some monster coming out of a well or something like that. And then you realize, oh no, this is just heist reading a children's book to baby hazel which somebody points out is a little too intense and then all the other people present are like "Yo, know, i read way scarier shit than that when i was growing up <laughs> yet another reminder that this world and this universe that all these folks live in is terrifying and violence is everywhere so of course the children's stories would be terrifying and awful not unlike most of the children's stories in the western european canon where people are eating each other and there are monsters and, witches, <laughs> and uh, it's all pretty awful
1: Right. And look, we all watched R-rated movies before we were old enough. It's fine. We all turned out fine.
0: Totally. Not desensitized at all. (laughs) So what's amazing, though, in this chapter is you realize pretty quickly that what's actually happening in this scene is the, like, inception thing that Heist and Clara had talked about in the last chapter, where they're trying to get Marco and Alana to realize that they can do some work on the open circuit. And so Heist, like, casually mentions that he used to date somebody who is now a set dresser for the open circuit. And Marco and Alana are like, ooh, I like the open circuit. Hmm. (laughs) And Marco, like, geeks out about it. Heist, like, encourages uh, them to go find the old tapes. And thus, the inception is complete.
1: Very, very sneaky of them. And that's actually what Marco and Alana rush off to go do. They put on this very clunky looking fishbowl VR helmet <laughs> and marco is intrigued by what he sees in this circuit performance it's very soap opera oh my god it's I, I, I
0: can't wait until the later chapters where we get to see more this is not a spoiler that like we'll get to like see more of this open circuit world. yeah, And I love it so much. It's like the worst. (laughs) For me, it's like a combination of WWE characters in telenovela plot lines, and they pull no punches. Yeah, And it's delightful.
1: It's so funny. And what's cute about the scene is that Marco is kind of confused. He's like, where's the subtext? I don't get it. And the answer there, buddy, is there is no subtext. (laughs) The two of them, Marco and Alana, then discuss... Alana's childhood dream of acting. It's something she had always wanted to do. And Marco convinces her that she should audition for the circuit, even though it's sort of like this almost illegal pirate radio type operation is the vibe I'm getting from their conversation. They ultimately kind of go back and forth about it, unsure about whether or not to actually try to work in the circuit. But they decide, hey, what better place to hide their family than in this pirate network run by people who all have paths that they're hiding from. This might be a place they actually fit right in.
0: Yeah, totally. And Clara and Heist then sort of pat themselves on the back for this whole Inception idea. And this leads to a discussion about fiction and feelings of combat. And then Heist is like, oh, I have this book that I have to show you. And he's like, super passionate about it in that way that like, It's like book geek flirt. Yeah. Where it's like, you're like, oh my God, I know something that's relevant to this and it's going to help endear me to this person. So I have to go get it and share it with them immediately. And then so he runs off to go get this book. And then Isabel turns to Clara and says, quote, he's completely into you, you know. And then Clara responds. I'm not blind, Wraith. So like (laughs) everybody knows what's up here. Clara's into heist, heist into Clara. So Uh, cute. Isabel tells Clara that she should get with heist and Clara pushes back and is like, my husband just died. And then Isabel hits her with this amazing quote, which is, you know, it's what you would have wanted for your man if you'd been the first to go, which is just on point and very real. And Uh. Isabel just gets to serve up the truth bombs left and right all the time, which is fucking great. This tender moment is interrupted though because Heist comes rushing back down the stairs, yelling at everyone to hide quickly because Prince Robot the Fourth is here. So we then cut to outside the lighthouse, where Prince Robot the Fourth is trying to call his wife back on the robot planet, but the connection is shady and the call drops. Probably has T-Mobile. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's so funny
0: and so true. Anyway, uh, so the chapter ends with some <laughs> Hazel narration and then we get this full page panel of Gwendolyn in the Will's cape looking at the lighthouse like she's about to like stir some shit up. So we got it. We got all of our major players on the same planet, literally in the same physical location. Shit is about to get real.
1: For real. The plot is about to go hyperdrive. So the next chapter, chapter 17, starts off with Upshur and Doff in bed confirming to us, the reader, that they are a couple. And of course, this adds even more context and depth to Agent Gale's threat to out them in the previous chapters. The brand suddenly appears in their room, and her companion, Sweet Boy, poisons the two reporters with something called embargo, and the brand explains that because of this poison... They cannot report on this story about Marco and Alana that they have been investigating because the poison will kill them if they do. So their only option now is to just drop the story, move on, cover something else. She then uses the crash helmet that she presumably used to enter the room to then portal away, explaining to the two reporters why Wreath and Landfall are so desperate for this story not to get out. Quote, it's the stories with no sides that worry them." End quote. And I love that so much, because it almost gives us this deeper understanding of the war and the politics behind it. To me, this reads as, "Both landfall and wreath benefit from this ongoing conflict, and it's more dangerous to them for people to realize that the conflict is pointless."
0: Yeah, there's some big, like, Orwellian, like, 1984 vibes, where it's like, as long as each of these societies always believes that there's an enemy that's not their own government, and they can, like, take sides, that they're easier to control. Yeah. I do want to point out one other thing, though, that I love about this, which is just, like, a at this point, there's certain things that are just, like, Brian and Fiona-isms, and it's not just that, like... The brand comes in with Sweet Boy, who is a St. Bernard with what looks like poison in like the little barrel that's strung around his neck that like, yeah. <laughs> if it was a St. Bernard in Switzerland would be like, you know, rum or whatever they use to revive people in the Alps. So that's cool. <laughs> but it's the fact that the dog delivers the embargo via these little darts that come shooting out of its nose, <laughs> like with <laughs> the sound effect in the panel is just S-N-U-F-T, which I guess is like soft. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that, and it's just perfect. It's just this little moment where, like, it could have been way more banal. It could have just been like blow darts or something. But no, no, right. no, we have to poison these reporters with blow darts that are blown out of a Saint Bernard's nose, and the Saint Bernard's name is Sweet Boy. So then we're back on Quietus, and we're basically like caught all the way up to the point where the last chapter had ended. Right, like mm-hmm. Prince Robot the Fourth has shot Heist in the knee, and everybody's freaking out. And we get this terrifying panel of Marco holding his hand over Hazel's mouth, because here's one of the things about a baby. If you ever need a baby to not make noise, that's when the baby's (laughs) going to make a lot of fucking noise. It's just like a law of babies. Yeah. So he's trying to prevent that. And so Clara wants to rush into battle. She's got this big axe. She's ready to, like, take care of shit. And then Alana actually pushes back with this line of like, oh, we have a family to think about, which is of course this recurring theme, right? Like it's the thing that's been thrown in Alana's face twice that she's reacted super strongly to. But in this moment, she's like, oh no, shit, there's a reason why people say this. And it's because I don't want anybody to die because then I have this family. It's more important to keep the family together. Yeah. So then downstairs, Prince Robot is shuffling through some of Heist's writings as the old man is sitting on the floor bleeding out of his knee. Heist has some philosophy stuff about what is the opposite of war. Everyone incorrectly thinks it's peace. They go into some stuff about Prince Robot and what he uh, thinks about when he's having his PTSD episodes, and they end up coming around to the idea that the opposite of war is fucking, which is kind of (laughs) wild. Meanwhile, outside, Gwendolyn is like, Scoping out the whole scene, trying to figure out what's happening in the lighthouse through these binoculars, which I love whenever there's some super low tech thing. Like, it's like, we have all of this magic and all of this, like, craziness. Meanwhile, she's got like, what looks like just like a regular pair of like Bushnell binoculars that you could buy at like (laughs) Dick's Sporting Goods or something. So she then is just like, oh, I don't know what to do. And like, we don't have enough probable cause to break in there, at which point Lying Cat is like, "Um, lying, you've plenty of probable cause. I also love that we get reminded occasionally that she's a government agent. And so she has to uh, like abide by more rules than perhaps the will or the freelancers would. Yeah. But in this case, it's clear that like, she knows that they need to do some shit. They gotta do something to try and save the will's life. So she reluctantly agrees to move in and go in closer.
1: Now, back on the will ship, Sophie is still tied up, and the will has a bandage around his bleeding neck. He's not looking so hot. Sophie is apologizing to the freelancer. She has finally come back to herself. And the will responds in weak mumbles. He says things like, quote, you promise to tell honest cat that me and you are square, and it's her job to watch after you here on out, end quote. He continues to sort of ramble as he passes out about money (laughs) and taxes. And then (laughs) he he gives her advice about
0: like, basically, like, annuitizing something called a conversion tax over a number of
1: years. It's like, (laughs) cool, I guess that's where your brain goes when you're about to bleed out. Right, right. And, you know, obviously, none of that makes sense to Sophie. But she, of course, panics when he closes his eyes and goes completely still. Back in the lighthouse, the family is discussing their dwindling options, Isabel has been unable to find another exit out of the lighthouse. The only way to go is down. And Marco says that they need to be prepared to take drastic action. He grabs a pair of scissors and implies that said drastic action may be to mercy kill Hazel so she doesn't fall into the enemy's hands. Alana and myself, honestly, is horrified. No. Alana is obviously horrified by this thought. And as the two of them argue back and forth about it, Clara makes the executive decision to sneak out of the room and go save Heist. Big uh uh-oh moment there. Downstairs, as you mentioned earlier, Heist and Prince Robot have this conversation about war and peace and fucking. It's a great sequence of panels. We'll talk a bit more about it in the takeaways later. But Clara interrupts this moment by jumping downstairs, battle-axe in hand, ready to fucking rumble. And this is the moment where all hell breaks loose. She calls Prince Robot a drone, which we learn is a derogatory term for his people in this universe. This angers him into blasting her with a hand cannon. Heist also reacts at that moment, taking multiple shots at Prince Robot. He accidentally sets the nearby bookshelf ablaze, Gwendolyn hears the commotion and bursts into the lighthouse spooking heist who raises his gun. And this is the most heartbreaking panel in this entire chapter. Instantly lancing D. Oswald heist right through his eyeball, right through his head. Clara then zaps Gwendolyn with some battle axe magic, which Gwendolyn defends with the Will's cool Defendo shield cape and Lioncat Lunges at Clara as Gwendolyn stands in this now burning room, just absolutely stunned. And all she can say is fuck. Oof.
0: Well, and you get this, like, also terrifying cliffhanger when you on Prince Robot's computer monitor or TV, whatever face, you basically get like the Windows 95 loading screen where it says <laughs> restarting. This may take a few minutes. And the fact that yeah. it's that blue absolutely is a nod to like the infamous Windows blue screen of death. Do you remember this? Yes. Is oh, this yeah. This is the thing that you dealt with in early Windows days. Windows 95. BSO- yeah, you'd get that BSOD and you just have to restart the computer by like turning it <laughs> off and turning it back on again, and nothing that you did would save, and there would be no explanation. So clearly a nod to the blue screen of death. But also terrifying, because restarting, this may take a few minutes. You're like, oh, oh, Prince Robot is not dead. So that then leads us directly into chapter 18, which In an unusual move for this book, we get right back, pick it up right where it left off in the burning lighthouse. Isabel appears and tells Lioncat that Lioncat and Gwendolyn had no right to barge into someone's private home and execute them. This logic, plus a little bit of like spooky ghost projection by Isabel, scares Lioncat into bolting out of the house. (laughs) Then upstairs on the balcony, Marco and Alana find themselves at a dead end. It's classic like action movie yeah they either got a scale down the side of the lighthouse or go back downstairs they're between a rock and a hard place and what are they going to do there's enemies downstairs a ledge where are they going to go and how are they going to get out of this Gwendolyn then shows up and asks Marco if he knows a healing spell to heal the will and Gwendolyn says quote The man I love, love is bolded, even in the text in the book. So that's the first time that we get that Gwendolyn is in love with the will. Yeah, Gwendolyn says, the man I love has been hurt, and I need your help to make him whole again. Marco starts to explain how the spell works, but when he then asks what part of wreath the will is from, Gwendolyn says, oh, he's a foreigner. He's not from wreath. And that's when Marco has to explain that the spell only works on wreath people, and that it's not going to work on the will. Things get heated. Alana tries to interject. Gwendolyn points the lance at her. Meanwhile, downstairs, Prince Robot tries to sneak up on Isabel. It scares the shit out of her, spooking the ghost. (laughs) The ghost gets spooked. Turns out the prince is in some sort of like reboot cycle. And like, you know, it's like all of his drivers didn't load or something when the Windows 95 reset happened. Right. And so he doesn't know who he is. He's just like sort of a, ironically, robotic drone who's offering support. And so Isabel is able to ask him to carry Clara out of the burning room as though she's a soldier who needs assistance. Uh, They get outside and then Prince Robot sort of wanders off into the distance mumbling about finding his
1: ship. Now, back on the balcony, Alana is trying to reason with everyone. She begs Gwendolyn to just move on with their lives. What was in the past was in the past. Can we all just forget about this? Gwendolyn reacts by trying to strike Alana with the extendo lance. But at the very last second, Marco pushes Alana off the balcony, taking the hit from the lance in his own shoulder. He then turns to Gwendolyn with that scissor still in his hand, but instead of attacking, he simply drops it and apologizes to her for his past actions. And he surrenders to her at this moment. Quote, Whatever you need to do to make this right, you should do it. End quote. And A tearful Gwendolyn tells him that he broke her heart and is about to finish him off with the lance. We hear the click of the lance activating when you flip the page and you get a full page image of flying Alana coming up behind Gwendolyn and shooting her with the stun gun. This scene wraps up with Marco and Alana hugging as Hazel's narration then tells us that the family was able to escape quietest that night. It's so good. It's like
0: that it's just like all of that action built and built and built and built to this like surprise Alana can fly because yeah. they had a conversation before about how her wings had atrophied and she couldn't use them anymore and it was like, "Oh, this is like when, you know, a mother or a father like flips over a car with the strength to save their child, apparently when imperiled, uh Alana can fucking fly," which is amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, if if it means life and death for her daughter. Her wings are going to (laughs) flap.
0: Absolutely. And so we get a little bit of a coda scene basically after this. So like the main action is completed. We get a little bit of a coda scene where it's a few months later. Upshur and Doff are arguing in their offices on their home planet about the Embargan poison and how they might be able to circumvent it. Upshur thinks if they report on Prince Robot IV like their editor wants them to, they could still indirectly accidentally tell the story of Alana and Marco. Doff is not convinced. He's like, no story is worth dying for. So they're not quite going to pursue this just yet. But clearly there's some bubblings in the reporting community that like, no, something's up. Which is, of course, like a little bit of a tease that like the world is becoming more and more aware that something has happened and that there's going to be more folks that are going to come looking. We also get another scene at a Lanphalian military hospital or like MASH unit, which is like a mobile military hospital in the field. The brand visits Recovering the Will. We learn that the will's name is Billy, which is funny that he just like, you always assume that it had been the will because his will was so strong and it's just the will <laughs> because his name is William, which is pretty funny. And you learn that this other freelancer is in fact, his sister, whose name is Sophie, which is, we understand now why Slave Girl got given the name Sophie, because he wanted to remember his sister who he hadn't seen in a very long time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Really heartfelt stuff. And clearly freelancing runs in the family for this (laughs) family. (laughs) Yes. Now to wrap up this chapter and this volume, we get a series of panels of the rocket ship tree landing on a new planet as Hazel's narration explains that some time has now passed. Quote, it would be a very long time before we saw any of our original pursuers again. At least it seemed kind of long but nothing warps time quite like childhood, end quote. And thus we end this chapter and volume three on a full page spread of a slightly older and extremely adorable <laughs> Hazel standing on her own two <laughs> feet next to her mother, Alana, in the entrance of the rocket ship tree on this new planet. Love it. That's the end of chapter 18 and clearly the start of a new adventure for our heroes in the next volume okay with the summary out of the way let's take a short break but don't go anywhere there's a lot of juicy details to talk about from these chapters when we come back we're going to get into our takeaways and share our favorite panels and quotes so stick around
0: All right. Welcome back, everybody. So our first takeaway from today's reading is, I don't know, I struggled a little bit because there's so much plot in this set of chapters, but then I was like, oh no, that's the point. So my takeaway from these chapters is when all the pieces on the board that have been sort of like moving and shifting around finally come together, shit gets very real, very intensely, and it's just amazing to yeah. watch unfold. We've talked before how like the earlier chapters in this volume were still focusing on the individual journeys taken by the separate parties of Prince Robot, Gwendolyn, Sophie, and The Will, and then the whole Alana, Marco, Hazel clan, and all of them on their sort of securitist paths to quietus to find whatever they were looking for. And these chapters show us what happens when they all come together. And it is righteous as far as payoff goes so many things that have been put in play literally going all the way back to the very first chapter leading up to these chapters are resolved with the biggest being you know we were first introduced to d oswald heist and his novel as being like sort of a core part of this story and so when it was introduced that we would actually get to meet him i assumed that he would be a character going forward and then of course he is not because he is very very sort of Unceremoniously executed by Gwendolyn, Mm -hmm. which is wild because she's been the one who's always been, I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to. And then she just like shoots this guy through the eye with a lance and with some pretty ironic commentary about writers, quote, killing their darlings. So like taking a treasured character or something like that that doesn't quite fit into the story and getting rid of them. This is something I actually had taught to me as I was learning storytelling um, as drowning your kittens. If you get too attached to a part of the story, it's like (laughs) a little cuddly kitten that you want to keep in. But if it is a drag on the story, you have to get rid of it. So even though it's a cuddly kitten and you love it, sometimes you have to drown it, which... Uh, shout out to my storytelling professor at Columbia, Doolin 2, who referred to it as drowning kittens, but (laughs) it's actually important here, right? Because the story isn't going to center around heist anymore. Like heist is not a character in the story. His work is an important influence, but it was important for Brian K. Vaughn to finally have us get to that character and have the main characters in the story learn that he was not some guru who was going to tell them what to do with the rest of their lives. He's just an artist. Artists are not there to be gurus. Artists are just there to make art. So that was amazing. We also get the wrap-up of Gwendolyn confronting Marco about their relationship, right? This has been a tension since we found out that, you know, Marco had a fiancé when he met Alana. And we get that tension resolved. And we get this sort of tension of like, okay, well, Marco and Alana are on this kind of like epic heroic quest. But they also need to do something with their lives to make money. And we get it in this idea that they're going to join the open circuit. So a lot of uh, loops are tied up, a lot of things are set up for the rest of the story going forward. And these chapters really serve as a kind of button on a lot of the plot that's come up till this point, while planting seeds for a lot of stuff that's going to come next. And it's just amazing to see how intentional and masterful Brian K. Vaughn is at plotting this epic saga. It really is this epic saga, which Even knowing what happens in all the chapters that come after this up to what's been published so far, it still kind of blows my mind to know that we are only 18 chapters in to this story out of what will be a total of 108 chapters. That's the thing that Brian Gabon has revealed. So we are 16.7% complete. If you want to think about (laughs) it like a video game, we are 16.7% complete through the main storyline, which is there's so much left. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. And look, being the completionists, we are. We're going to 100% this video game.
0: Oh, we are going to 100% the shit out of this with a (laughs) lot of side
1: quests along the way. For sure. Yeah, I loved that this set of chapters and volume three not only wrapped up the story contained within this volume, which most of the volumes do. Most volumes serve as some sort of arc that start and finish within those six chapters contained within But volumes one, two, and three could almost be looked at as like a part one of the story as well. Like you explained, we've wrapped up a lot of loose threads that were set up in these first three volumes. And it's clear that with the slight time jump at the end of chapter 18 today, that we are wrapping up one part of the story and setting the stage for what comes next in the lives of Marco and Alana and Hazel. So it's very... I don't know, it, it pleases my OCD. The storytelling is very tidy in that way. <laughs> yeah. It, it it
0: it like it feels like we I don't want to continue the video game analogy too far, but it's like this was a boss <laughs> fight, sort of, right? Yeah. And now like we're ready to move on to the next chapter. And like a lot of boss fights, the boss wasn't defeated. He just sort of stumbled away off into the distance because you know you're gonna have to fight him again. Yeah,
1: exactly. There's gonna be a phase two. What about you, Abu? Yeah, what what was your takeaway from these chapters? So I actually wanted to slow down for a minute and just reflect back on D. Oswald Heiss as a character. Now that we've met him, spent some time with him, and watched him die, I think it's important to reflect back on the role he played in this story and in the lives of our main characters. Our time with him was pretty short-lived, all things considered, but boy, did he have a massive impact on our main character's lives, both before they meet him, while they meet him, and after they leave him. I also wanted to point out that in the previous episode, you had brought up that D. Oswald Heist is as close to like an author stand-in character Mm -hmm. as exists in this story. Mm -hmm. A lot of what Heist does and says oftentimes feels like Brian K. Vaughn himself speaking to us as the reader. And I... Love that. I had never heard that interpretation before, but you had brought it up and I couldn't stop thinking about it while I was writing the script for today's discussion and rereading these chapters. I was like, yeah, this is the character Brian sees himself in. Like how George R. R. Martin sees himself in Sam. Like every author sees themselves in one of their characters.
0: No, totally. Especially with the stuff that Heist says about artist's intent and interpretation and all of that stuff. Brian K. Vaughan is very big on that idea of that the reader is really like, as interpreter, brings their own ideas to the story. That there's not some sort of like golden artist's intent that can be nailed down because the reader will always bring their own stuff to it. And that's something that you hear straight out of Heist's mouth. Yeah. It also makes me wonder if uh, Brian K. Vaughan thinks the opposite of war is fucking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think he most certainly does. So let's talk about Heist as the pacifist writer. That's one aspect of this character, obviously. And it's the part that attracts Marco and Alana to him the most. They adore him for this, for his writings. And the writings are what bring these two lovers together in the first place. It's what they Mm -hmm. initially bond over as a couple. And of course, later we see Prince Robot IV push Heist on that pacifist philosophy on his writings, to try and basically push him to the brink and beyond, to get him to be violent, to break his philosophy, to test it, to question his writings. We see Prince Robot do that during that very intense standoff interrogation scene. Mm -hmm. And to Heist's credit, he doesn't break. He's given plenty of opportunities to take a shot at Prince Robot IV, and he doesn't. He truly does believe in his pacifist Philosophy that he writes about, despite losing a kneecap, which, ouch. <laughs> and I will say the only point he does actually resort to violence is when Clara is shot by Prince Robot IV. And I would argue that that's less an act of violence or an act of war and more an act of love. We obviously know about the relationship by this point. So I think Heist, to his dying moments, stayed true to his pacifist beliefs. Now, to dig a little deeper into his pacifist beliefs, we have to talk about Heist as a father and an ex-husband, because it's made clear to us that Heist has seen some shit in his life. Between losing his son to suicide because of war trauma and the death of his musician wife from that errant spell, it's obvious that Heist hates war, and he hates it for very personal reasons. What's so beautiful is that we don't dwell on these past traumas. Instead, they're used to empathize and support a grieving Marco and Clara, which I loved so much. And it's the basis, this grief, is the basis for the budding situationship. I don't think we can really call it a relationship, but whatever is happening between Heist and Clara, this trauma that Heist carries with him and that Clara clearly has as well, is what brings them together. And this heist slash Clara relationship is one of the most heartbreaking what-ifs in this entire story for me. I would have loved for these two people to have lived happily ever after, but that's just not the world Saga exists in. What I did like was seeing heist play a bit of that father figure again when he and Clara hatched that plant to convince Marco and Alana to think about taking jobs at the circuit so it was very beautiful to see heist fall into that father figure role and to use his trauma as a way to connect with another person and be there for that person when they needed it most i loved that about his character yeah
0: and even just getting to see him and clara like bond over a mission there was like a little bit of like i don't know you could just see that like the instant friendship and that would have led to a longstanding relationship. And yeah, I agree. It's so sad that that doesn't get to happen and that Clara not only lost her husband, but then had a new potential partner introduced that seemed sort of by kismet. And then he immediately died as well. There's just so much trauma, so many characters dying. And like we said in previous podcast episodes, any character can be taken away literally
1: at any moment. Yeah, for sure. Now, Two final things I wanted to quickly touch on are some of that meta commentary potentially from Brian that we talked about. The first is Heist's take on children's stories, which I really, really loved. This was actually going to be my favorite quote, but then I decided to make it the takeaway. This is what he says, quote, all good children's stories are the same. Young creature breaks rules, has incredible adventure, then returns home with the knowledge that aforementioned rules are there for a reason. Of course, the actual message to the careful reader is, break rules as often as you can, because who the hell doesn't wanna go on an adventure? End quote. (laughs) Ah, I love that. I got goosebumps just reading that again. This idea, to me, feels like a moment where Brian K. Vaughn is breaking the fourth wall and directly speaking to us through heist. Mm -hmm. And it's such a beautiful sentiment. Reading maybe a little bit too much into it, I think this quote also confirms to us that Heist is skilled enough as a writer that there's no way his like shitty B-movie romance novels are just shitty romance novels. There is oh, yeah. subtext there, he knows how to wield it, and everything that Marco and Alana read into definitely exists.
0: Oh, a thousand percent. Like Prince Robot thinks that their treatise is on radical pacifism and everybody seems, everybody who does any kind of close reading to these seems to come away with that conclusion. And, you know, we never actually get to see at least so far what the source material is other than a few little brief snippets, but uh, he knows what, he knows what's up or knew what's up. Sorry, buddy.
1: (laughs) RIP. Okay. The last thing I wanted to briefly touch on, we already kind of talked about this in the summary, but Heist's take on war, peace, and fucking, (laughs) which is another great passage from today's reading. He says, quote, Why the hell does everyone think peace is the opposite of war? It's just a lull in the action, end quote. And then, as we discussed in the summary, Prince Robot comes to this realization that the opposite of war is actually fucking because of what he's experienced on the battlefield. And my take on this is that it's clear based on our limited knowledge of Heist and his life that my man is a lover mm-hmm. and he's a romantic, and there's a reason he has numerous, multiple ex wives. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, for sure. <laughs> Beautiful stuff. So, just shouts to D. Oswald Heist as a character is the summary of this takeaway. I loved what he represented in this story, I loved the messages that Brian told us, the reader, through this character, and the story would not be the same without D. Oswald Heist and his effect on this family. So R.I.P. to a real one. D. Oswald Heist, you will be missed. It feels unfair that we
0: finally got to meet this character and Brian K. gives him so much depth and so much just everything, and then it's ripped away, but there's that whole meta-commentary in that Hazel narration where she talks about writers needing to kill their darlings and how... This, again, feels like another time where Brian is talking through, uh, around Heist directly to the audience about how writers get told to kill their darlings. And Brian is saying like, no, actually, you should cut away everything else and keep your darlings. And I think it seems like if he's saying that, then why is Heist killed off? And what you have to think about is that, no, actually, the core darlings at the center of this story are still and will always be Alana Hazel and Marco and we need them to continue their journey without having the side distraction of this romance between Clara and heist and whatever else was going to happen. So loved it. Also just loved the way all of the art was rendered in these chapters. Like I love the spaced out sort of grand wide shots that we get in a lot of these chapters as this world is unfolding. Right. But also just the way that Fiona Staples is able to draw kinetic motion and like firefights and battles and like it doesn't matter sort of what is happening, but it has like this almost manga-esque character whenever something is like there's weapons flying around and she just does it so incredibly well. So it was really hard for me actually to pick favorite panels from this chapter because there's just so much good action. So I went completely the other way and was like, okay, no, I'm not gonna pick from all the action panels. What I did do though, was pick not one, but two full page panels, because (laughs) apparently it's my turn to break the rules. And we can just think (laughs) of these two panels as one piece of art Uh, in the art world. They call this a diptych where you take two images and they're actually one piece of art together. Mm -hmm. So this diptych for me is These two full-page panels that show two very different versions of what Alana is and who Alana is as a mom. The first one, we talked about this, is the way that Fiona renders Alana as she surprises Gwendolyn by being able to fly. So she's it's a full-page panel, Alana flying midair, gun-drawn, pointed down at uh, Gwendolyn, clutching Hazel, While holding gun, what's more badass than, like, cuddling a baby infant while holding a gun? And it's just so amazing. It, like, basically stops everything. And she gets that kick-ass line, I think you'll live. It just, it it has action (laughs) and it has intensity. And it just, yeah, the whole idea that, like, nobody thought she could fly, she can fly. It's, like, badass, like, you know, mama bear intensity. Gonna do anything to protect my child. Yeah, And then the second full-page panel is actually the last page of Chapter 18, where, It's a couple months later, Hazel's a little bit bigger, and we get this full-page panel of the spaceship tree port opens, and toddler Hazel is like taking her first tentative steps, potentially outside of the tree, into the world, and Alana is standing behind her, encouraging her. And also standing there to make sure she doesn't fall out of the ship or whatever. Because, <laughs> you know, the, the the sort of encouragement, protection, mom energy is, like, palpable there. And you can also feel the way that Alana is, like, beaming with pride that toddler Hazel is taking her first steps, can take steps out into the real world. And like you said, we get the extra triple added bonus of baby Hazel or toddler Hazel now being so fucking cute with her little, like, puffball hat with the yes. little dangly balls. Yes. And it's just like... Everything about it, she's still enough of a toddler that she's still got the little chunky legs. So, you know, just like immediately I could imagine in my head the thing that happens next is she just kind of like turns around and stomps back inside the ship. And uh, this is maybe a biased perspective, but I think that that age of like – 18 to 24 months where kids can like stomp around but aren't very good at it yet is the cutest age that children can be. Yeah. Uh, and I love it. It's just those two together showing the two sides of what motherhood can be uh, defending and intense, but also encouraging and cautious. I, just every part of it. I love those two panels
1: together. I love that. And also, what is this coat that Alana is wearing in this final panel? She's looking <laughs> oh, it's good. So good. Alana is a babe. I don't know if I've said that on this podcast yet, but I want that on the record
0: oh 100% and she's like she always has like good style her yeah. looks are always fierce marco is kind of like you know he's like cool dad but still like big dad looks lots of t-shirts and jeans but alana has like full <laughs> yeah. fits that they all rock yeah for real
1: so my favorite panel from today's reading is actually kind of a innocuous one for some reason that one panel in the middle of the firefight in the Burning Room where the rebooting Prince Robot IV is sneaking up on an unaware Isabel, that panel really caught my eye. And we've talked about this before in a previous episode, but so much of this story and the way that Fiona draws these panels and these transitions uses basic filmmaking techniques, Mm -hmm. wide shot, tight shot, over the shoulder, reverse over the shoulder, All of those basic filmmaking angles that we see in TV shows and movies Mm -hmm. make an appearance here in this comic book. And this panel in particular of Prince Robot sneaking up on Isabel just screamed iconic horror movie to me with how the quote unquote camera kind of pulls wide and we see the burning room and there's smoke and through that smoke, we just see the faint outline of Prince Robot, but we see his big glowing computer face coming up behind Isabel, who has no idea he's sneaking up on her. It just reminded me so much of like a Friday the 13th, Jason sneaking up on the poor victim shot. Yeah. And I love that framing in this story. And I know we've said this before as well, but I am just here once again to request that Netflix or Amazon foot the bill for an animated saga adaptation. Please, I need it.
0: No, I love that panel too, especially with him coming up out of the smoke. I didn't get as much like Jason from Friday the 13th vibes as I got the Terminator from Terminator 1 or Terminator oh, 2. Like yeah. there's the sound in both those movies when the like Terminator emerges, that's just like this dzz, like yeah. droney sound. And like that's 100%, whether it's Arnold Schwarzenegger is the Terminator in the first one or the T-1000 in Terminator 2, like that was the vibe. It was just like, oh, shit, this is an unstoppable killing machine. And it is coming for them out of
1: the smoke. Yeah. I loved it. Okay, Alan, let's wrap up today with our favorite quotes. You go first.
0: All right. So one of my favorite things that Brian K. Vaughn will do in this book uh, is to use Hazel's narration as a connection between scenes and locations that are happening simultaneously. So it's like the glue that'll stitch together when we have that like A plot, B plot like thing happening at the same time. And Hazel's narration will be a way to connect the two, and it's literally like connective tissue will, one line will start in one location as narration and then finish in another. And he does that between two scenes in chapter 15. So Alana and Marco having this conversation about Alana joining the open circuit and Gwendolyn discovering that Sophie has stabbed the will in the throat. And specifically, Alana and Marco are talking about, well, if Alana, who has always wanted to act, joins the open circuit, Marco will be a stay-at-home dad. And Marco is delighted at the prospect of this. He's like, Of course I want to be a stay-at-home dad. So then yeah. the narration from a So then the narration from Hazel says, quote, after years of pitched battles, my father was ready for a significantly less stressful career. And then on the next page, as Sophie is literally standing on the will's throat, narrator yeah narrator Hazel continues, quote, Unfortunately, he decided to try raising a girl, (laughs) which for me is just like, I don't like to lean into gender roles or gender prescriptions when it comes to kids, but there are absolutely whether they're societal or genetic or whatever, there are some parts that are different about raising kids that identify as boys with kids who identify as girls. And one of them is very much, and I've already seen this with our daughter as she's approaching five, uh... Girls can just like, I don't know, they they just like push back better and harder and their will is so strong. My four and a half year old, if she doesn't want to do something, she's <laughs> fucking not going to do it and there's nothing you can do about it. So yeah. I just love that like little way of yeah. connecting like what is happening in the story with this general commentary on having a girl child. I think that Brian Kavon's first child was a girl. So he'd gone through that experience before he went into writing this book and I just totally
1: love it. Yeah. I also imagine when your daughter stabs you in the neck with a knife, it hurts a lot too. So, you know, Uh, it's not easy being a parent. It's not easy.
0: (laughs) What about you, Abu? What was your favorite quote from this set of chapters?
1: So I went back and forth a lot on my quotes. There's such good writing in these chapters. We talked about quite a few of them already in the summaries and in the takeaways earlier. So for my official favorite quote, I went with Heist's response to Alana when she asks him why he's never written a children's book if he's such a big fan. And the response is just, once again, so deliciously meta. He says, quote, because it requires collaborating with an artist and artists frighten me, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) That got a really big chuckle out of me because I love when Brian gets meta like this in the story. That's been a big theme in today's discussion. We talked about Heist, how he is the stand-in for Brian himself, Mm -hmm. this bald, peace-loving, reclusive author. You can really see the connections there. Yep. And you can also tell in this panel how much fun Fiona had drawing that line in particular, the line that was obviously very much about her. Because Heist just looks so cute and spooked (laughs) in the way he's drawn. He's trembling in this almost very cartoonish way which was adorable and cute. And I loved this sort of writer-artist talking to each other commentary back and forth through this dialogue here. I also, and th- and this is perhaps just my headcanon, I also like to imagine that this is Brian's way of complimenting Fiona mm-hmm. on her incredible talents, which perhaps frightened him, mm-hmm. right? Like if I had to work with Fiona Staples, I would be bringing 110% of myself to work every day just to keep up with her. Oh, oh. yeah. And I felt through this piece of dialogue, I felt some of that energy from Brian. But perhaps that's just in my own head. Okay, we did it, Alan. We did it. Volume three, complete. Another deep dive episode in the books. Volume three, complete. 16.7% through this story. (laughs) Plenty more left to do.
0: (laughs) Glad that I did the math on that one. So just to... Give a little clarity to our listeners. Uh, We know we've been on a little bit of a wonky release schedule the last couple weeks because of life uh, gestures wildly. (laughs) But we're going to get back on track from here on out. So for those of you who are up to date on all the chapters of Saga, you can expect another quick reaction episode. We've really liked doing those. So we're just going to keep doing those as new chapters of Saga come out. So we're going to dig into that new chapter 57 uh, that comes out later this month, and then For those of you following along to our read along episodes, make sure you've read through chapter 21, the first half of volume four, because we'll be back in two weeks to deep dive into chapters 19 to 21. And then lastly, just a reminder, as we said at the top of the show, we're working on some new episode formats, including bringing on guests. So if you yourself are interested in being a guest on a future episode, send us an email or record a voice memo and send it to hazelsstorypodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you might want to talk about. Come on the show and tell us how wrong we are about all this. We'd love it.
1: <laughs> yes, please come geek out about Saga with us. Well, friends, two minds can sometimes improve the odds of a podcast survival, but there are no guarantees. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network on LordParty.com. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, podcasts are fragile things, but just like Alana, Marco, and Hazel, we'll all just keep learning and exploring together.